0: Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. We've got two people on uh, this time. Um, If you were going to design a meditation show, these are probably the two least likely people you would have on the show. One is a neuroscientist. The other is a major general in the U.S. Army. Uh, and they know each other. They've worked together, bringing mindfulness to uh, the troops. We're going to hear about how this whole thing came about. But let me just tell you who they are first. Dr. Amishi Ja is a neuroscientist and an associate professor of psychology at the University of Miami. She studies how the demands of high-stress, high-stakes professions may degrade the brain's ability to make decisions. And she has found in her work that groups like accountants, students, athletes, and military service members benefit from mindfulness training. The other guest is Major General Walt Pyatt uh, of the U.S. Army. Uh, Walt began his military career as an enlisted soldier when he entered uh, the Army service in 1979. He's had a more than 35-year career. He's served in numerous assignments all over the world, including tours in Korea, Panama, Hawaii, and Alaska. He's also completed several operational deployments, including Suriname, Bosnia, Kosovo, Afghanistan, and Iraq. Such a pleasure to have you both on the show. Thank you for it's coming great to up. Be here. Yeah, thanks for having me. So, so I'm going to start with the question I start with, with everybody, and I'm going to pick on you first, Namishi, just because we know each other better. Um, how and why did you come to meditation?
1: So I'd say the answer is in two parts. The first is a personal need, and I guess very much similar to your You know, your story. I didn't have a panic attack on national TV. Were you doing cocaine? (laughs) I was not doing cocaine.
0: So not really similar to my story. (laughs) Similar
1: in the sense that I had a growing understanding that it was my mind that was causing me a lot of pain. Gotcha. I was a, a new faculty member and a new mom at the University of Pennsylvania at that time. And everything outwardly looked fine. I was continuing to have success at a great institution. But the stress of it was actually crippling. And at some point, I realized, like, I don't want to live my life like this and t- turned to my husband, actually, at that point and said, I think I'm just going to quit my mm. job. Mm. And it was around the time the semester was about to end with, the, you know, just a grueling schedule of teaching and just everything was intensive, especially with the new baby, too. And he said, you know, you could do that, um, but why don't you just try over the summer to see if there's some some, some other way you can make yourself feel a little bit better? And it was really fortuitous for me that right before the summer started, we had a guest speaker in town who was Richie Davidson.
0: Ah, okay. Can I tell everybody who Richie Davidson yes. is? Yes. So Richie Davidson uh, has been on this podcast. He was on the first podcast we did, uh, him and, and the Dalai Lama. Richie Davidson is really the pioneer in terms of using neuroscience to examine the impact on the brain of. Uh, contemplative practice, meditation, et cetera, et cetera. So he came to the University of Pennsylvania, gave us a little shtick, and you were- Well, uh... so
1: no. So Richie at that time was not out.
0: Oh. <laughs> um, oh, really? He
1: is an eminent affective neuroscientist. So he studies how the brain emotion systems work. And he gave a wonderful talk, a keynote having nothing to do with mindfulness mm. or meditation. And at the end of his talk, he actually showed these two images on the screen of brain scans, one of it, what he called a positive brain, a brain of a, somebody in a positive mood, and the other of a person in a negative mood. And he was just trying to make the point that the brain really looks different in its functioning and its in its uh, profile as a function of mood. So at the end of his talk, I raised my hand and I said, how do I get... That brain, the negative one, to look like that brain, the positive one, and he looked up and said, "Meditation," and that was all he said. And they, he said, "I've, you know, that was the end of the question and answer session. That was it." And I was—that's the first time I was—I was sort of shocked. Like you realize you're at Penn. Like we don't use those words here. And he was serious. He—he, he, I did have a chance to talk to him a little bit later about it, and he was saying some of the work they were just starting. So this was a while back. Mm. Uh, but it got me curious. So that summer I bought my first Mindfulness for Beginners book by Jack Kornfield and just committed to doing the practices, and it changed everything about my life. So that was on the one hand, the personal side. The professional side was after doing this for several months, I realized that the thing that it was seemed to be affecting was my attention. And my entire career as a neuroscientist had been spent studying the brain's attention system. So I just became extremely curious about how it was – that this thing I was doing quietly by myself for 15 to 20 minutes a day was profoundly changing everything about my life and shifted my entire lab's research focus to, to explore that.
0: Okay, I want to unpack this just a little bit. Yeah. Walt, I'm going to get to you, I promise. You're <laughs> going to make your life very difficult in just a few minutes, but let me stay with Amishi. Um, it's so weird to call a guy with like all these stars and bars on, on his jacket Walt. I feel like I'm going to get in trouble. W- what do you mean it changed your attention? What do you mean by that? And, how do, and, you, and and also, what do you mean by it like, changed so much about your internal weather? What do you mean by that, too?
1: Okay. So in terms of—I mean, it took a while for me to realize that this is this thing called attention that I know a lot about from my day job. It really just changed the quality of my moment-to-moment life. I could look at my husband and listen to the words he was saying to me. I could be with my child, read a book, and actually look at the pages and see the images as I was sitting there with him. It was like I became more present— to my circumstances, and nothing had changed really about the level of stress or demand, but I was more embodied in what I was trying to do, and there was less angst around everything going on, um, and then that that's when I was sort of like putting it together and thinking, oh, okay, the thing that might be resulting in this benefit is the way I'm directing my attention, the way I'm making my mind is staying in the moment, and it's not just – moving forward to the next thing that's going to happen and worry and anxiety-provoking thoughts or ruminating on bad things that have already happened that are kind of weighing on me. It shifted where my mind was in, in time.
0: And what were, just briefly, what was the practice you were doing? What kind of meditation?
1: So this was a basic you know, mindfulness of breathing exercise where the instruction was to sit in an upright, comfortable posture, pay attention to the sensations of breathing, and when my mind wandered to gently return it. Um, and then opening up to more receptive practices, to so open monitoring type practices, to anchor on the breath, but to really allow uh, any any thoughts, emotions, sensations come and then pass through.
0: Very, very interesting. Okay, so we'll continue with your story in a second. But let's get over to Walt. So how did, how and when did you start meditating?
2: Well, when I met Amishi, and for all the reasons you just heard. So that's what really introduced me. We had been since then. You weren't a, doing cocaine. I was not. <laughs> I was doing clarify. I was doing war and, and a lot of it, I guess. And yeah. so we were coming back uh, time and time again after each deployment, trying to reintegrate our soldiers back into society and each time we'd see soldiers just spiral out of control. And so the army was really putting a lot of time and effort into how can we help our soldiers post deployment. And that's what led us to, to Amishi and they asked to do a research project with our soldiers in Schofield Barracks, Hawaii. Amishi did. D- Amishi did. Yeah. And so she came out. We were introduced by an army doctor that said this may be a different way of trying this. So let's research the use of mindfulness in post deployment and pre deployment training and during a deployment.
0: And so you're talking about guys coming back from Afghanistan and We Iraq.
2: just got back from Iraq. I was a brigade commander at the time in 3rd Brigade, 25th Infantry Division, and we just got back from Iraq and we had been you know on and off again, you know, a, a year gone, a year back, a year gone, a year back. So, so we
0: we, this was back 2009 when you guys first met? This
2: was in 2009. Yeah. And um, so we knew what we had been doing post-deployment was not working. So we really wanted to try something new, and, and this, this was presented to us as a, a way. So we put about 200 soldiers uh, in, in the research, and I, even though I was a brigade commander, I somehow couldn't get myself into it. So I was kind of jealous the seeing about this. was, Wait good. a minute.
0: So <laughs> when, when, the, when she came to you and said, yeah, we would like to get your soldiers to meditate, yeah. did, did that, well, was did, that not completely embarrassing and like why was that not outright rejected well she, tri- she
2: tricked me so she <laughs> she sounded like she did just a second ago you i, I couldn't understand about every third word she was saying <laughs> hey. but I, I could read her charts and the charts were the science was absolutely uh impressive and that's what we were lacking in the military we were providing a lot of information to soldiers like don't drink too much, you know, but don't spend all your money at one time, don't don't go home and beat your wife or beat your spouse or do this. And none of this was working. We had provided them enough uh the availability of assistance, but we weren't really helping them, you know, pre-deployment. We weren't really helping them with the mental challenges of combat and the mental challenges of just stressful life within the military. And that's what this offered. And she so she really led with the science, which was absolutely convincing. She explained in 10 seconds what myself and, my, and the sergeant major for the brigade had been experiencing since our many combat deployments. So, you know, we were guilty. We sat there and realized we were not managing stress well and it was impacting our lives. And just the way she described it, we were convinced. I don't think the word meditation came up within the first meeting.
0: Yeah, but you knew it involves sitting, closing your eyes, and paying attention to your breath. What other word is well, there that, for that?
2: Yeah, we were, so we were, we were a little curious, but we weren't yet suspicious. We were like, because everything we'd been doing had just not been working. You were so kind we're, of
0: desperate. We're, really. we,
2: we are. We were, and we were very open-minded. Uh, but then when I explained to it that we're going to go through some training and teach, our, teach soldiers uh, to meditate and do this practice, the rest of us who didn't get into the research project, we started to self, just teach ourselves. And we we understand in the military without a doubt we we carve out time every day to do physical fitness it's at least an hour a day we we provide for just for physical fitness you see the benefits immediately but we don't do any time for our mental fitness and that's one of the uh, one of our most powerful weapons really not uh, weapon is the soldier's mind itself because we put them in a very complex stressful environments and they have to be able to interpret those environments. And they're under great stress in split seconds and make very difficult decisions. so anything that could help them be in the moment and understand what they were seeing and not what they were trained to think they were going to see was very helpful. It was helpful in accomplishing our mission the right way and it was helpful with managing stress with our soldiers which we think will you know greatly help with the post-combat uh, deployment and, and just post-combat stress.
0: I want to talk about the results of the study in a second, but but uh, what I'm surprised that I'm not hearing from you is rampant, acidic skepticism among your colleagues and peers. Uh, so did you not run into any of that?
2: Oh, we ran into quite a bit. Okay. <laughs> so uh, the sergeant major and I, multiple combat deployments, we were a bit desperate, so we were very open-minded. And we saw the science behind it. We were very eager, but the soldiers—I'm sure—they said, "Oh, what is the colonel got us doing now?" A lot of that great resistance, uh, but it was something new. But I think with shortly, people started to see a difference, and, and then they started to get buy-in, and and a lot, and and then there's a community that practices as well. And I think you know, athletes, especially professional athletes, are, are you know, in the military, we we like to call our soldiers—you know—they are they are warrior athletes. But I think that that, uh, that comparison to professional athletes really helped them bring it in and say, well, there might be something here. Wouldn't you want to see the ball when it's getting thrown at you? Wouldn't you want to be in the moment when you're in a, on a combat patrol in Iraq or Afghanistan? And the answer is certainly yes. Well, this can help you get there. Uh, but you do have to do some convincing and soldiers have to see it. If they don't feel it, they're not going to come in. So it's, they're just not going to practice. They're not going to practice on their own. But when soldiers started to feel results, you could sense they were more eager to practice on their own. And I think Amishi's results show that, the, the ones that would say, yes, I would
0: do more on my own, they showed better results. What what are, what did you find from that initial study?
1: Yeah, so the study it's a, was a very big study, the first of its kind, that the medical command had funded. Um, and we were asking a bunch of key questions because, again, this is the first time anything like this had been done. One question was really around dosing. So how much time do we need to take in order to have effects? And it was an eight-week period of time that we had devoted to the training. Some people got 24 hours over that eight weeks, some got 16 hours, and some got eight hours. And that's where we were not sure if we were going to have effects or not. The second question we wanted to ask was really around, well, if you're going to have some period of time, what should be the emphasis in that time? Should you spend your time talking to them about the downside of stress and the value of practicing, or should you just not really say much and just have them practice while they're in the room with the trainer, sort of like if you go to the gym, do you want your, you know, your personal trainer to tell you how great exercises, or just sit there and do the reps with you? Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, and the other thing was just how does it compare to other things that the army was interested in trying out, um, that were actively part of the profile of what the army was doing for resilience. So comparing mindfulness training to positivity training, where the intention for positivity training is to cultivate more positive mood, uh, and see what the impact would be. And I'll just tell you one of the research studies that we've um, that's already been published uh, last year, uh, which was the one with eight hours. We found that we could go down to eight hours and still find benefits. But if that eight hours was just filled with the didactic, the information about how bad stress was and how great mindfulness was, it looked no different than doing nothing at all. Mm. The group that actually got the mindfulness training and mostly did practice in class significantly stayed stable over time, whereas the other group and the control group completely degraded in their attention. Uh, How are you
0: measuring attention?
1: So this is where the laboratory toolkit that I already had expertise in was really helpful. Um, Most of the things in my lab were computer-based tests, brainwave recordings, functional MRI studies of attention. So we use that technology where essentially you're doing something like a simple video game that is quite boring, that requires you to actually overcome that boredom and your own internal chatter in order to do the task. Um, So we saw how often people were able to Press the button when they should, and not mind wander and miss it completely, um, as well as how aware they were of whether their mind was wandering or not.
0: But but Major General Walt wasn't worried about attention among his troops. He was worried about them beating their spouses and and drinking too much right. and maybe running the cars off the road. So what? So
1: this is where it was really. Uh, I think I connected the dots in that first brief that he mentioned, which is essentially attention is one aspect of what we call executive control or cognitive control, the ability to make sure that the goals you have align with your behavior so that you're holding in mind what your ethical code is, what you think the right way to be is, um, what you consider to be your aspirational way to be, um, and ensure that your behavior really serves that goal instead of losing entirely what you'd like to be doing and then not being able to follow it. So attention is the key kind of workhorse system that allows executive control to be uh, possible. It's also the thing we need to regulate our emotions Uh, to communicate well, to make decisions, to plan. So all of those things are tied to what he wanted to see as the end result. Um, What I noticed is that the way that the Army was doing things at the time we arrived on the scene with this project was essentially, you know, in some sense sort of death by PowerPoint. Tell people what the aspirational goal should be of how their behavior should look, but no tools on how to get there. And I think what we provided was a sort of a mental workout that would allow them to actually grow these capacities that were surely depleted after being you know, in war, if, uh, combat deployment of, after combat deployment.
0: So did you, did you find any, uh, any evidence other than anecdotal evidence that these guys were not – that not only was their uh, attentional capacity boosted, but that their behavior improved in some way?
1: Well, that was sort of the um, – that was their own self-report. That,
0: so that was more yeah. anecdotal.
1: That was anecdotal. When, when they would kind of describe how – and most of the things were not about their day job. It wasn't like I'm a better soldier. It was like I can talk to my wife without yelling at her at Mm -hmm. night. Mm -hmm. You know, I can go to my daughter's soccer game and watch it. So it was really like the personal shifts that were happening in their lives, similar to what happened to me myself, that they were showing up to their life in a way that, that felt like it's the way they wanted to be as people.
0: But did you find that that the the stuff that you cared about because you didn't care so much at least correct me if I'm wrong but from what I heard initially you weren't looking to boost their attention span you were looking for them not to ruin their own lives when they got home from deployment were you seeing less of that among those who got this training
2: we were but what we quickly learned was that this was something that wasn't going to be just post deployment we quickly learned that wow that you know we should be doing this pre deployment because. We realized, as you know, senior folks that at multiple uh, deployments, that every everybody suffers from post traumatic stress. E- everyone, uh, but not everyone has to suffer from uh, fa- falling into despair or disorder. But what what caused that? So it was really what we realized was we need to be doing this pre deployment. We need to be learning how to manage stress and manage attention, mm-hmm. which gives you a, a, a better. A better soldier to to be able to face those traumatic events because he's regulated or she's regulated, and then they come out the other end, you know, much much less stressful. So we saw immediately, wow, this is something that's not just for our post deployment, though that was the reason it got us there. But if certainly we saw right away that the applications of this were much more beneficial. But you did see it. I, I felt I felt it. My uh, a lot of our senior folks felt it because they've been deployed so much, they really felt like, wow, I'm really enjoying my time <laughs> with my family. You know, you're so anxious to get home, but sometimes you just your your mind didn't catch up. You're still you're still deployed, and this really helped us just to, to you know really enjoy those special moments we were able to have with our family in, in between deployments.
0: When we come back, you say compassion is more powerful than bullets.
2: I do say that. I did say that. I also said before I deployed to Afghanistan on one of my deployments that we could win this war without killing one more person.
0: Stick around. third line free on essentials via monthly bill credits versus comparable available plans plan features may vary credits stop if you cancel or change plans there's a new answer for people in need of serious pain relief Lidocare has created a -a one-of-a-kind pain relief patch that blocks pain for up to eight hours. With the only non-water-based lidocaine patch on the market, Lidocare uses patent-pending technology to desensitize aggravated nerves for an odor-free, ultra-flexible, dry and light solution to pain. The Lidocare Pain Patch from the makers of Blue Emu. For long-lasting relief, you can wear. Available at CVS. Can you tell me a little bit about the difference between pre-meditation, Major General Walt Pyatt, and post-meditation?
2: Well, I think, uh, I, in looking back, I could see times where where we were in the moment, we made good decisions, we couldn't put our finger on it. I could, I could see soldiers that experienced post-traumatic growth, but I saw a lot of soldiers experience post-traumatic stress disorder, and we couldn't figure out why that was, and we thought it was just because we were training very hard, we were creating combat-like conditions within our training so that when they got to combat, they were prepared for that type of stressful environment. What we may have been doing is elevating stress to much higher levels to our soldiers and not teaching them how to regulate. which is the missing ingredient. But we saw different uh, examples of that before we even knew, we knew what mindfulness was or were introduced uh, over our many deployments, and we just tried to figure why was it that way. And when I saw the science behind uh, Amishi's work, that's what really convinced me right away that there's something here we need to we need to pursue. But immediately what I see is because I think some people come about it naturally, uh, that they are they self-regulate. They're they're able to deal in stressful moments while still being, you know, very much in the moment and in a a stressful combat operation and make that split the second decision and make the right one. Whether it's to use force or not to use force, it's a, it's one of the hardest decisions a soldier has to make, and he makes it very quickly, not always with complete information. But you don't want him have to be a high level of stress when they make it because they normally make the the wrong one. Uh, so we saw examples of that. So when we saw the application of uh, then post or learning met, uh, to meditate, now it's just you're you're able to get away from the, the stereotype that we have to be multitasking and, 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 and to be effective in the military, that the more you more you can do, the better you're doing it. And this kind of proved to me just the opposite. So now I'm, I'm very comfortable with taking a pause, studying a problem, or even walking away from it and, and, and doing some type of reflection, even if I don't have time to sit for 20 minutes, even just walking out in the courtyard of the Pentagon and just do a, what I call a mindful walk, just walk through and focus on you know nothing and then come back. And I'm able to get things done in a much more efficient way. So I've seen efficiency in my own life from this. but I've also seen soldiers become much more, you know, happier at home post deployment, and much more effective during during their deployment during their careers.
0: What about you? Are you happier at home, and are you just happier in your moment-to-moment experience? I
2: I, I am, and I think I, I I was. I mean, I was very happy, but I could see the stress. I could see I could feel it uh, coming back. You know, things were irritate me. You know, just getting stuck in traffic. You know, loud loud noises things going wrong that really never bothered me before. I was very patient. I thought very tolerant, but my wife noticed it. And then so I'd always made sure I was exercising and exercising was my pre mindfulness way to regulate. That was what I did. And I had to do more and more of it in order to get that feeling back that I was being relaxed. But you, 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 you feel it. It's not, it's not like you're some ticking time bomb, like you might see on TV, but it's the little things that, that start to build up on you. And then you just, you know, you're blow up with anger on something that was just so insignificant, you know, prior to all these events in your life that, that you start to realize something's wrong. I mean, you're not spiraling into uh disorder. That's a very serious case, but all soldiers are affected by it. And if you're not uh, recognizing it and dealing with it, uh, then, then things could get a lot worse. But what I found is if you're less stressful pre-traumatic event, you, you handle the trauma better and you certainly come out of it a lot better. Yeah.
0: That makes a lot of sense, and the policy implications are gigantic. But so, so, Misha, that was the first study back in two thousand nine. Can you? I assume there have been. I, I know there have been more. So, can you walk me through just basically what you've been finding?
1: Right. So, I think that the this this overall profile is very similar to what I described to you, and I don't know if that was uh, clear in what I had said before. If we look at people that are going through very high stress situations, and that could be soldiers preparing for deployment, the deployment cycle itself. Or in the civilian context, you know, undergrads preparing for finals. I mean, anything that is a high-stress period of time, protracted over multiple weeks, has an impact on attention. We know it has an impact on well-being. We know people report feeling more stressed and unhappy. But what we've been able to track is that if you look at their attention using these simple computer games, at the beginning of that interval and at the end, attention declines. And that, I think, is kind of a, an important thing for people to realize is that there are costs to going through a high-stress interval. And that if those same attentional resources are necessary for you to regulate your mood, to have successful interactions with people, and to solve the problems that are part of what makes the interval high stress, and you have less of that resource, you're going to be compromised, right? So when I speak about that period of time and what happens to attention, we're really talking about figuring out some way we can build cognitive resilience, so allowing people to grow the capacities that we know weaken over high-stress periods of time. And so that's what we've done. We've looked at various high-stress groups, undergrads, accountants, football players, all during kind of intensive periods of time. And sure enough, we find that the groups that don't get the mindfulness training or some, get some other form of training that doesn't emphasize this present moment awareness um, degrade in their attention and their mood. And the people that get the mindfulness training and actually practice it stay stable, or even get a little bit better than where they started. So that's sort of the broad brush of of the uh, kinds of things that we're looking at.
0: But you keep working with the military, right? And
1: so the military thing has been very interesting. So, you know, we in this first study that we did in 2009, my partner in all of it was Dr. Liz Stanley at Georgetown. Yes, yes. I've interviewed her, yeah. Yeah. And so the thing that's really uh, remarkable about Liz is that she sort of embodies the expertise of somebody that knows a lot about what it means to be a service member. She was... Uh, in the military herself. Um, and she knows a lot about what it means to be a mindfulness practitioner. But that's a very rare combination. Mm-hmm. She also happens to be a professor of uh, you know, security studies. So she professionally knows about this area. I mean, that, that's, there's one Liz Stanley, there's not hundreds of them. So now that we found that the training is effective, that offering mindfulness training pre-deployment can actually protect against the decline that you normally see, the Army's uh, concern was, well, how do we grow this capacity? How do we have more people that can get the training? And so over the last several years, what I've been doing and I've been grateful that, uh, you know, that Walt's been part of uh, our advisory board is trying to figure out how we can make the training, again, low dose, low tech, highly accessible and scalable.
0: So basically you need a lot of trainers. Yes, you need we need more, l- people, we need more people
1: that can do it. So there's t- two ways we could go. One way was let's take people that already know a lot about mindfulness. Let's get mindfulness-certified trainers and train them in how to deliver our program that we had designed for soldiers so that they already have the mindfulness piece and we'll teach them about contextualizing it for the community. But the other way we were going to go, simultaneous with this strategy, was let's get Army trainers, sports psychologists that know how to train soldiers well who may or may not be soldiers you know themselves but they know how to train service members so that they're high performance and we train them in our program and that's what we're doing now we're kind of looking head to head to see which group is more effectively able to offer the uh, program so that soldiers benefit.
0: Why not use technology, like have this, the training delivered through an app or something like that?
1: So we have done that, too. That's something that's been ongoing in my lab, is looking at various uh, apps to see. I think that that's a good strategy to go forward. So far, our challenge has been that um, you have to have some buy-in and some uh, accountability that the app is actually engaged in. Even if you turn it on in the recording plays. There's no human ensuring that people are following it. So, what I'm interested in trying now is let's have an app where there's some kind of coach.
3: Where there's somebody. I know that. I know
1: that. Let's have a coach. Let's have some kind of bookending of in person sessions so that they know what this is about, what they're getting into. And then throughout the process, they are able to get the assistance that they need. So, exactly. I mean, you and I have even started talking about that is how are ways in which we can use this kind of, I think, a next generation of app that takes into account the human interaction to guide people, to coach people, to really allow scalable delivery.
0: So we could do like a 10% happier military style. Uh, but the thing is I would be the wrong guy to be involved in that because I'm like five foot seven and 120 pounds and I've never been in a fight. Let me re- revise. I've never been in a fight that I've won. <laughs> uh, so I might not be the right guy. But I definitely think there, there there's – I'd be interested to see what the numbers show you because I, I would imagine in-person pedagogy will have be more impactful than an app.
1: So far that's what we're finding. yeah is giving people an app does do actually basically it's it's showing us no difference uh, depending on the app. So if we give them a relaxation app or a you know brain game app with like cognitive attention tasks, uh, or or a mindfulness app, there's no difference. Doing something is better than nothing.
0: Yeah, but if you want to scale this thing, there, uh, that's the question. Can you train enough human beings who actually understand how to teach other human beings how to do mindfulness, which is a subtle art? That seems to be the problem.
1: That's my next grant. That's your next grant. That's the question I want to um, really pursue. And like you said, the challenge with any research design is having enough numbers. Um, and testing out different delivery models, right? So, like I described to you, is the mindfulness expertise the key, or is it the context expertise that's expertise that's the key? So far, I'll give you the kind of where we're at with those results. It looks like the thing that seems to really win out in terms of soldiers um, appreciating and following the training and benefiting from the training from our laboratory measures is the one w- that's taught by the army trainer.
0: Interesting. So they need to be able to relate to the person who's teaching them this practice.
1: And it's not the case that the army trainers are service members themselves, but they're right, sports but they psychologists that they know, know how to, talk how to... to... Yeah. Exactly. They can yeah, relate yeah. to this the particulars of this culture.
0: So if you bring in like a a a meditation teacher who's got 30 years of, you know, talking about the Buddha and 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 you know, like a lot of these people have this like soft purr in their voice and they're, you know, it feels like they're trying to give you a Reiki massage with their vowels. It's like those people are not going to work with the military. (laughs)
1: So far, it doesn't seem to be mm. the right way to go.
0: No, I mean, it's just it's just intuitive, yeah. on my yeah. end, at least. They don't work with me.
1: Right, right, exactly.
0: And, and, you know, I'm not in the military for a lot of good reasons. Do you have a, a, a hunch about what the best way to, to get this out
2: to well, people? Well, I me? will say, at, at first, Liz Stanley was very helpful in this because she did relate to soldiers. I mean, she had yes. personal yes. trauma, yes. and so that was just her and she was very intelligent and being a college professor that I mean it was just she really identified with soldiers and that language and we've we've done some work with the mission just to be able to talk the soldier athlete language very helpful as we take a lot of fitness um, advice from folks who aren't in the military but if they show something that's working well, everybody pays attention to them okay what's the latest gig? so when when crossfit came out you know military's very interested our soldiers were very interested. some of those exercises we've been doing in the military for years but the way we were presenting it wasn't as Cool, or it, and so it didn't appeal as much, but we have had a lot of good work in the military lately with apps because of our young soldiers identifying them, especially when it comes to military schooling, where they are, they are more likely to do all the pre work, pre class work on an app, and we've seen higher graduation rates in some very difficult classes such as Jumpmaster a course where you gotta learn how to be in charge of an airplane that's gonna put out parachutists. It's a very difficult school to pass and requires an incredible attention span. But when we downloaded things on apps that they could do all the pre-course work, saw a lot higher success rates. So I'm a little bit more optimistic, but it will follow the science. I know the hands on someone who identifies much better. But we do physical training every day and everybody in the platoon is about what you normally do every day or a squad. They're all pretty good experts. You know, they grow up in that environment learning how to do physical fitness, so they're able to lead every single day. So if we can train ourselves, and I know that's going to be a hard startup, I think we'll get there because they'll see the benefits and they'll want to do it. Soldiers don't want to miss physical training in the morning. They just don't want to because they see the benefits of it. It helps them with their promotion, helps them with their, their life. They feel better. They get the results. And if you're stationed in Hawaii, you want to go to the beach on a weekend, too, so it doesn't <laughs> help either. So, I mean, it really helps. And But when they see the benefit, they go after it with, with a hunger. And, and especially when they hear about athletes, you know, Seattle Seahawks doing that, Russell Wilson. I mean, people see that. They they want it. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they want to get after this. So. It, uh, I think we'll get there. It's, it will take some convincing. It's military, just the army is very big, very big organization, and when you come in, it, it almost sounds like it's too good to be true, and I think we still have a lot of convincing to do with with some of our top leaders that this isn't magic, this isn't too good to be true, this is real, and the science will, will prove it, and your your brain does show the effects from from practicing this, and it really doesn't cost a lot. I mean, we have we spend a lot of money defending our nation uh, with building our military and all the services this is one i think is affordable the payoff is enormous uh, to my mind we're going to we're going to get there it's just going to take a little bit longer but I amichi's mean, going to lead that charge for us <laughs> so, so so
0: i'm just to, to, to drill down on that a second you are part of the army brass so you but yes. but as you talk to your colleagues you you're still bumping up against some skepticism
2: we, we, uh, skepticism plus you know it's another thing we want people to do and and mm-hmm. soldiers have a lot of things coming down from the top oh, here just do this and and time is one of the resources we just don't have a lot of and so it's very hard when you're coming into an organization say here carve out this time to do this the first resistance is no does doesn't matter what you're asking because if you're trying to take time away that they've already have scheduled in a very overloaded overscheduled uh, time uh, units every every day are to ask them to take a you know just even ten minutes. It's like they can't find it, but when they see the results, they certainly find it because'll n- we'll, no matter how tough our schedule is, we will make time for physical fitness. This just has to get the, you know we have to grow it that way then then the priority will be on our mental fitness, our physical fitness, and then everything else I think will come we'll just do everything else better in less time, and be more efficient.
0: Can you imagine a near-term future where mindfulness and meditation are part of basic training? Yes. That is I... cra- That is a crazy notion. Well, I
2: think the soldiers see it. We, we, we've tried a lot. I mean, the Army, uh, what we have in the Army now is what we call our comprehensive soldier fitness. We understand there's more than just physical fitness. It's sleep, nutrition, spirituality, and mental fitness. Now, how we, get a, how we go about that is what we're trying to introduce mindfulness in because I think in basic training is probably the best place to introduce it. And it's probably the best place because it's very high stress. Although it's very organized, great instructors, uh, take really good care of the, the soldiers, but they're away from home. And, and and it's it's culture shock when you come into the Army. If you, you've you never been in a, you know, maybe played high school sports, you may be a little bit used to that, that kind of group shock, I guess, of, you know, really being a hard hard uh, uh, schedule to keep and and not getting a lot of sleep and you know having to listen to someone else tell you what to do every second of the day but we have to we have to teach our soldiers you know how to be soldiers and I think this is where it really really would fit it would reduce stress from the get-go they would see the benefits of it because they see the benefits physical fitness right away some of them come they've never done a lot of physical fitness so we take extreme care to slowly introduce them while preventing uh, injuries took us years to realize Mm -hmm. this I don't, I don't know why, but it really did. We realized you know, we can't start just doing you know, 100 push-ups a day. You got Some soldiers can't do 10, and we want them to do 100. So we slowly build it up. And as we've studied you know, uh, uh, stress fractures in running and uh, load-bearing, how much weight and all this over the years. So we're really smart on physical fitness. We just need to follow the science more on, on mental fitness, and, and I think that will prove mindfulness is the best course for us.
0: Now, I think this is amazing, but, Amishi, you know this. There are those in the sort of more traditional circles uh, in the meditation world who think you're taking this ancient um, sort of essentially peaceful mental art and giving it to people who are violent. How do you respond to that?
1: I think that, you know, from my point of view, if you're going to have an 18-year-old and send him to a war zone, with a weapon that can destroy an entire village, why wouldn't you want to make sure he has access to f- his full capacities to make the right decisions? And that's what this is trying to do. So in some sense, it's not about, you know, making better killers. It's that when force is to be used, it's used in a way that's appropriate, not reactive, um, that the decisions that are made are informed by people being able to hold their own ethical code even in crazy violent circumstances. And that's what's not appreciated. It's that, you know, we live in a time where we have a military. We live in a culture and a country that is inactive combats, I mean, the combat situations. And, and they have the capacity as individuals to actually do a lot of harm. So it's not that um, we're going to prevent those circumstances from happening. It's the nature of the world. But even at the individual level, if we can empower them to be better able to access their own ability to to prevent bad things from happening. Why wouldn't we want to do that?
0: I agree with you. I mean, Liz Stanley, who has been discussed a lot in this podcast, who just so everybody remembers, is um, somebody who's worked with Amishi and has also spent some time training uh, the U.S. Um, Marines in in how to to do mindfulness. Um, I asked her once this 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 question of you know Are you training better baby killers? As some in the in the uh, sort of old-school contemplative circles have alleged, and she said, no, we're training people to kill fewer babies, yeah. you know, to make wiser, more effective decisions in the field and to be more resilient when they come home. Um, so, anyway, that's a long way of saying I agree with you. But, Mamishi, you wanted me to ask Walt about one of his expressions, which I find uh, really interesting, especially given the source. You say, compassion is more powerful than bullets.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I did. I do say that. I did say that. I also said before I uh, deployed to Afghanistan on one of my deployments as a battalion commander, I told our battalion that we could win this war without killing one more person, because warfare is much more complex than just killing, and and sometimes the overuse of force builds combat power, what we call in the military, builds sy- sympathy and power for your enemy. So if you if you uh, apply force incorrectly. It actually has the opposite effect that you're using it for. In this type of war, you you cannot kill your way out of it. You will not kill to to win. You must you must be able to build while using force with surgical precision. And compassion was in my and from my experience was much more powerful and much more effective because it allowed us to one lead with respect uh, for the people of Afghanistan. For the example I'll use. Uh, for my good friend, the uh, Governor of Paktika at the time Gulab Mangal, we 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 built a long-standing friendship. My our job was to build, not to destroy, and and if we went in there with the mentality that we're going to be effective and decisive through killing, uh, that that was really just a, a naive approach to warfare. It's much more complicated, and therefore compassion to the Afghan people and the struggle uh, that they were enduring in Paktika Province, where I, where I wrote about and I I said this uh, was we needed to understand them. We needed to be compassionate to their needs. And that way, it separated them from the enemy that was trying to undermine their struggling and fledgling government that they were trying to build. So it was actually a very effective tool. Uh, And I'm not doing it to to trick. I mean, these were real emotions that we felt for our friends. They were, uh, they still are our friends. And I think Gulab Mangal said it best that when we left Paktika, I asked him you know, why were we successful? This was in 2005, very successful election. Pactica was not going to vote in the national election because it was too violent when we got there. The new governor and with the help of us, we believe we were part of his larger security plan. We subordinated ourselves to the people of Paktika, and and almost 100% of the people of Pactica province voted. Uh, it was really kind of a tribal vote. So it was, it was still a bit different, but 50% of them were female and Mangal. Got a personal phone call from Hamid Karzai congratulating him on what was supposed to be the most violent province in the, in the election. Turned out to be uh, the most peaceful. But it was because we understood the, 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 the struggles that the Afghan people were going on. that We weren't just uh, focusing on the enemy. And I also told our folks, another one that confused soldiers a lot. I said, you know, if we focus on the enemy, we ignore the threat. the threat is much larger, you're talking about, you know, very serious government complex systems that have to be built in Afghanistan for people. So it was really the decisive means to that end was was capacity building within the government that gave the Afghan people what what they needed, and that forced them to look internally to their to their government and when the enemy then separated, and it was easier for us to find the enemy, and we could, if we had to use force, it was with surgical precision. But there were several times. I'll just use one example. Well, we left the village after doing a, a medical demonstration all day long. We brought we brought female doctors in so the females could be seen. It was a very positive day at the request of the government. But as we left the convoy, uh, our last vehicle, there was a grenade thrown on the vehicle. And the gunner did what he was trained to do. He jumped down into his turret. He yelled, grenade. Luckily, the grenade didn't go in the turret. It rolled off to the back of the vehicle, got stuck in a... In the, in, the, in the equipment we were carrying and exploded. He immediately jumped back up, manned his, manned his gun, saw the figure that threw the grenade running, and in a split second decided not to shoot. And there were so many children around, and he had a 50 caliber machine gun. He would have, he would have killed many innocent people. Plus, he saw that the person fleeing could be no more than maybe 10 to 12 years old. So in that split second, that soldier, by not, by not acting, I'd say acted decisively and and later on we went back to the village and we said okay they thought we were going to go door to door search every house arrest every man we didn't but we stayed there and we said let's let's come to a resolution of this and and, and they didn't but so I left and I said please bring the person responsible to our base camp and we want to we want to talk to them two weeks later the, the father brought the tribe brought in the father and the young boy that threw the grenade on that vehicle Wow. Uh, and they they pleaded for us to arrest the father and leave the son to take back to the village, but they were offering his father uh, in his place, and they the tribe agreed on it. And by the Afghan way, we had every right then to arrest this, the arrest the father. We decided not to. We introduced the boy to the to the vehicle and and the team that was in that vehicle that he threw that grenade on that day, and he saw that we weren't the evil infidels. We were just boys at one time, just like he was. We were we were men just like his father was and that we really wanted to bring peace to this very difficult land. We built more uh, relationships with that tribe that day through this compassion, uh, which began militarily decisive because we got incredible intelligence from this village the rest of our deployment, and they, they solidified their stance against the Taliban. They would not allow them to come in and influence their young kids to take up arms against the government, uh, and we never had to worry about that village again. So. I, I know it's a, it goes against what you hear a lot of military saying, but I'll tell you, our military is trained to do that. Where we're, that's what I think makes the United States Army very, very good. We we understand that just because we we're an army and we have force, the best thing to do is not to use it to absolutely have to.
0: You know, I, I find everything you just said very compelling, and um, but but I just wonder about the the reputational cost to you of you know i understand you wrote a couple books of poetry you're a guy who says compassion is more powerful than bullets you're hanging out with this unreconstructed meditation person over here and um and do they like call you major general moonbeam behind your back or what like what is is this a problem for you or is it is it good
2: well i it's one of the things i like about your book because you realize you know you still got to go to work every day and you still have to be demanding i'm the director of army operations and uh they may call me other things behind my back. I'm sure they do. But there's still a very, very, uh, very dangerous world out there. We've got to do very, very tough things with people, and you've got to get people to do things they don't necessarily want to do. It's a, it's a uh, defense and security is a, is a tough business, and especially with the increase of terrorist threats, the terrorist threats to our homeland. But I, th- I think this helps us do it better. So I, I make no apologies. I open up. But I do think there is there are a lot of soldiers that are like me. I don't think I'm any different. I think we realize that uh, our mental capacity is very important. And if we don't care for it and understand it, uh, we're going to burn ourselves out. We're going to burn our soldiers out. We we, we saw it. We, we still see it, unfortunately, in many people. And we can't just enha- enhance soldiers uh to make an optimal warrior through technology it's it's just not going to work we have to be able to give our uh soldiers the tools that they can manage stress and pay attention because the stressful environments we put them in demand it so i i don't know if people call me names i mean i'm 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 proud of my service and i'm proud of many of my peers i think a lot of people write in my in, from my experience writing was very therapeutic for me it was a way of letting emotions go of some very difficult things but it was also a way of honoring those who serve in these incredibly difficult positions away from their families for years at a time uh their way you understand it i mean you you were there it's just very you're put in some very difficult places uh, and it's just a way to identify but I, I think our army understands now that uh we were beyond the stereotypes of 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 you you, you got to be able to just deal with it, soldier, that it's just stress. Deal with it. Rub some uh, dirt in yeah. it. Yeah, and, and those were the days gone past. We understand the complexities of the world. We understand the complexities we put our soldiers in. We just want to give them the tools that they can do their job to, to the utmost ability, do it correctly while, while protecting the innocent and, and, and capturing and, and, and denying our, our adversaries uh, the ability to have their will against us or our, or our nation or our allies.
0: What's your what's your daily practice like?
2: It's I'll tell you I have a very difficult job. The director of Army Operations is not light, so I have to be in the office. Uh, for my first meetings at six thirty in the morning, then I have another one at seven o'clock. But what I do is I, I manage my I run into work in the morning because I, I live a few miles from the Pentagon, and so after my two briefings, when I get another shot to go to the, do about a twenty minute workout, and then I stop. And I either in my office or in a corner in the gymnasium in the Pentagon, I, I go from five to 10 minutes. And it's really been limiting in, in this in this job. So I do that every morning at work
0: uh, of just, you know, paying attention to the breath. And when you get lost, starting right. It. Yeah.
2: <laughs> and, and over like you said it's like holding a fish. I think yes, it's very, it is very like much like it. And in this job, it's really hard because there's a lot of demands waiting for me. But I realized if I because when I first took the job, I stopped like practicing for a month, and I could feel myself just really not handling things well.
0: Yeah, it's like your inner toxicity goes through the roof. Yeah.
2: And you've got a million things real life coming at you every hour that are happening around the world that you have to help, you have to address for the Army. So that's how I get after it every morning. So I make that a priority. I make physical fitness a priority in the morning, and I make my uh, uh, practice a, 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 a priority in the morning. And then, like I said, during the day. So normally, by by ten o'clock in the morning, I'm exhausted. It's like you've done a full day, and you mm-hmm. still have another full day to go. So I'll normally walk out to the courtyard of the Pentagon, or go find a corner and and stop for maybe five or ten more minutes if if I can. So that, that's I have to I have to shorten my time. I have to put some
0: increments in it, but uh, it's it's what I can do, so I do it. I mean, to my ears, it sounds great. I tell people five to ten minutes a day is awesome, and it sounds like you're doing even more than that. And also. I'm just reading between the lines. I think, I suspect you're probably bleeding it into sort of your daily activities as much as possible, which is really kind of where the rubber hits the road. What about you, Amishi? What's your daily practice?
1: Yeah, I've the I've been fortunate to be able to carve time out after my children and husband are out of the house to do about. I like to do 30 minutes. So I was doing I was doing similar to what you said. I mean, I was telling people 12 minutes seems to be the sweet spot in some of our studies, but when I pushed it past that, I felt even better. So I'm trying to do 30 minutes, and I like to combine the, um, the mindfulness practice with a compassion practice. So I do loving-kindness practice as well.
0: So we, we've talked about loving-kindness a lot on this show, but just for if in case we've got first-time listeners, that, that is a practice, just to put it briefly, where you're kind of envisioning people in a systematic way and sending them good vibes.
1: Yeah, or yourself.
0: Yeah, and yourself, yes. And
1: actually, one of the things I wanted to mention, just because you were asking about uh, Walt um, regarding, you know, he is an outlier. He's an amazing person and definitely distinct than probably most other people. Uh, But thankfully, there are other enlightened leaders that we've been able to meet in the military. And in addition to all the work we're doing with active duty uh, service members, we're also working now with military spouses. Mm. And what's very interesting about that is it's kind of – Going from the spouses benefiting themselves to then the husbands mostly, in most cases, asking what's going on and taking some of the materials that we're providing the spouses to, to take back to their units to practice. Trojan horse.
0: <laughs> so it's very
1: interesting. Yeah, it's very interesting how uh, things are shifting. Um, and that the Surgeon General of the Army is interested in wow, promoting this. Really? So, yeah, yeah. I mean, she asked me to brief 400 of her top leaders in this topic of mindfulness.
0: So do you – are you – from your point of view, are you still running into some cultural obstacles as you N- try to
1: – No. I would say the obstacles are real, but the obstacles are not entry into doing it. The obstacles are how you can offer this in a way that really is best practices for implementation. So most, most people that I meet, leaders – I say I want to do a mindfulness project with your group. And they say, sure, I can give you two hours in one afternoon. And so my intention in my work is to say, really, you know, is would two hours in one afternoon have any positive lasting impact? So our our, our projects are now really asking around, again, similar questions. How low can we push the dose? If we can get some amount of time over a couple of weeks – how should we do that? Should we do two four-hour workshops? Should we do an hour a day? And these are not the most um, maybe scientifically juicy areas, but they're practically so important. So those are the kinds of things that I'm interested in tackling now is how do we provide this? How do we scale it up? How do we have a low-dose format? How do we have apps, for, for example, that could help better support what people are doing um, at all levels, from small unit leaders to you know higher-level leaders to everybody?
0: What's your vision for the, let's just say, not distant future? Like, What's your vision for the role of mindfulness, not only in the military, but in the larger society and in the not too distant future?
1: I think it's, I mean, that's been my interest all along. It's, I mean, we've come now with, what, 50 years of work that uh, make it obvious that our public health uh, leaders would say, you know, daily physical activity is necessary for physical well-being. And my vision, my hope is that we understand that the mind is the same way and that we have the science that can provide guidance on what the daily mental exercises should be for psychological well-being. And that's sort of the work that I'm pursuing is how to answer those questions to inform a larger enterprise. So it's not just that it's important, but how do you actually implement it in your daily life?
0: We're almost out of time, but before we go, I just want to ask you as a a – uh, a very prominent member of uh, the contemplative neuroscience community—that's the name for people who use uh, neuroscientists who study meditation. There have been there's been some controversy about the study the the quality of the science in, in, in around mindfulness and meditation, not just the neuroscience, but all of the science. Um, and, Criticisms ranging from the study design isn't good, the people doing the studies are kind of in the tank; they're they're pro meditation, so they're biased. What's your view on this? Can we trust the the science, or is it being hyped?
1: I mean, I think that absolutely it's being hyped. Um, I think that the cultural momentum is way outpacing the rigor that we need to be able to make concrete with certainty guidance, provide guidance. And I do think that we have to take a look at any positivity biases there might be. And that's the criticism is that essentially there's an overabundance of studies that are finding benefits um, and you can see it. And I think that's not going to serve us at all. Um, And I think that that kind of statement, those kind of statements being made is helpful because then publishing the study in which you found nothing or publishing the study in which you actually found something that you didn't expect, like things got worse in a way that you didn't anticipate. Those are all going to become valuable for us to get a more accurate picture of what's going on.
0: I just love having the two of you on because my whole mission is to, to, sorry, that's kind of a military term, but uh, (laughs) my mission is to make this attractive, make this practice attractive to people who would otherwise reflexively reject it. So to have a hard-charging type A neuroscientist uh, and mom and a major general in the U.S. Army coming on talking about it uh, in in the way in which you do, which is sort of down-to-earth, relatable, but also sincere, uh, is, I think, extremely valuable. So thank you to both of you for coming on. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Dan.
0: All right, there's another edition of the 10% Happier podcast. If you like it, I'm going to hit you up for a favor. Please subscribe to it, review it, and rate it. Uh, I want to also thank uh, the people who produce this podcast, Josh Cohan, Lauren Efron, Sarah Amos, and the head of ABC News Digital, Dan Silver. And uh, hit me up at Twitter, Dan B. Harris. See you next time. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. In the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com/slash survey. When you're committed to raising the standard, you're bound to ruffle some feathers. At Happy Egg, we like to say we farm differently. But in reality, we produce eggs the way people used to, by partnering
1: with local small family farmers who raise our happy hens on eight or more acres. Because, in our opinion, farming shouldn't be complicated. It should be happy. Choose Happy with Happy
0: Egg. Visit happyegg.com and look for the yellow carton at a store near you. Happy Egg.
3: I'm Shimol Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition.